if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard this story read before, and you may even know that it's the centrepiece of Mark's Gospel. All the way up until this point, there's an underlying question, who is this guy? And Peter answers it, you are the Christ, Jesus. And then from that point on, it goes on to define what that means. So it's a really critical moment in the Gospel of Mark. It's the clearest statement of Jesus' identity, but it is by no means clear enough. And we see that in the interaction that follows, which ends in an almost punch-up situation, if you like, where Peter and Jesus you know, step outside and have to sort a few things out. It's quite confrontational. So let's just look at what's happening here. They're walking along, they're going through Caesarea Philippi and Jesus is trying to find out what's the mood of the people at the moment. Who are people saying that I am? Everybody believes something, don't they? We always believe something about everything. You know, ask a question, you've always got an opinion, sometimes you don't perhaps, but the environment that we are in shapes the questions that we ask and the answers that we are looking for or we would find satisfying. So it should not surprise us that the people were looking for a military saviour because first century uh, Jews in Israel were an occupied territory. Rome had come in and annexed them and they were run by Rome. They had a a titular uh, Jewish person in um, Herod but basically they were being overlorded by Rome. So they wanted to be free and free meant get the occupying forces out. So it's quite understandable that they were looking for a Messiah who could bring a, uh, a military solution, force the Romans out because without forcing them out it wasn't at all clear that they would leave. People knew Jesus was someone special, but. So who do people say that I am? Well, you're one of the prophets, or perhaps you're John the Baptist, which is particularly special given that John the Baptist had already been killed. So that's kind of special, hey? John the Baptist risen again. Uh, One of the prophets, or Elijah, preparing the way for the Messiah. There was a great sense of anticipation in the land at the time, and... uh, People knew that Jesus was part of that anticipation and even with expectations so high, they were not concluding that he was the Messiah. I find that interesting. I mean, we read the stories of Jesus and think it's a bit of a a lay-down misere, a no-brainer. This guy, clearly, someone very, very special, the most special. But for those who were with him at the time, it wasn't that clear their set of expectations was here and Jesus was over here and they were kind of, well, we know he's really special. He's doing some remarkable stuff. So he's probably Elijah, prophet, something like that. This should give us pause to think. Even with this heightened sense of expectation, a sense of moment, 
people were not concluding Jesus was Messiah. His strategy for downplaying his miracles and so forth was clearly working. Remember we saw that last week? He heals someone and says, don't tell anybody. And all that kind of stuff. So, you know, he was, that was working. It raises a question for me and one I'd like to pose to you. When you think about salvation, what are you hoping for? What are you hoping to be saved from? What are you hoping to be saved for? They're really important questions because, as we see, first century Jews were hoping to be saved from Rome so they could have their own political freedom. Today we often look for material salvation. I want to be saved from my relative poverty, perhaps. Although not so much in this environment. Maybe we're looking for political salvation. God, someone send us some good politicians. A worthy cry, I believe. Maybe we're looking for social, relational salvation. Or some kind of salvation for our existential emptiness. Or our fear of the future. What do you want to be saved from? What do you want to be saved for? So Peter comes out really clearly and says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And he got it so right. It was an unequivocal declaration, not some half-baked notion of, you know, you're a really special guy or, you know, we think that you're really preparing the way or something like the others. Uh, it reminded me of um, when K- Prime Minister Rudd in 2008 gave the apology to the stolen generations. It was unequivocal. You know, leading up to that time, and I think John Howard's government had the challenge of possibly doing it as well, and there was all sorts of legal concerns, and how can we say it in such a way that doesn't open a liability of, you know, some kind of financial da-da-da-da, But when Kevin Rudd made that that apology, he said, on behalf of the Australian people and the government, I'm sorry, and just laid it out there. It was unequivocal, no holds barred, no uh, mitigating circumstances. It wasn't shrouded in conditions or softened with half measures. It was clear, it was sincere, and who knows, perhaps even unknown in its implications just as Peter's declaration was also really unknown in its implications. He was stating that you are the one we are looking for. This is Peter. You are the one we're looking for to Jesus. You are the one we want to follow. And Jesus immediately says, you're right. Go and tell everybody. No, he doesn't. He says, you're right. Don't tell anybody. This evangelism thing, it's really got my head going, you know. (laughs) We're told to go out and tell everybody, but Jesus himself is constantly saying to people, shh, don't tell anybody, you know. He'll just, don't tell anybody, I'm the Christ, but don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. What is going on with this secrecy? And basically, I think it's because it's too early to tell, not in timing, so much as in understanding. 
don't tell anybody is I think Jesus' most frequent parting request of all the interactions he has in the Bible. And he does it here and it says with a warning or added emphasis. He says, really, this time, it's not about a healing or anything, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ and I'm serious because if they get that in their heads, the whole thing's going to break loose in a way that's not going to be good, I think. And he does that warning because he knows that he is not what they are expecting. Jesus was the Christ, sure enough, but not the Christ that they were anticipating. Uh, So Jesus had to reshape their expectations and um, Peter's a classic example because he starts to do this and Peter goes, hang on Jesus, Um, I think you're off script here. The Messiah is not going to suffer and die. The Messiah is going to lead us to victory. You know, that's the whole point, isn't it? And this interaction that goes on, which is so remarkable because within, you know, a few lines, Peter has said, you are the Christ, the one who is the Messiah of God. And a few moments later, he's rebuking Jesus. Do you pick that up? Imagine the balls of that guy to make that declaration and then go and rebuke Jesus. <laughs> to be a fly on a tree in that situation would have been fascinating. I mean, that, but that tells us how incongruous this whole situation was. Peter was absolutely sincere in his cry, you are the Christ, and he was absolutely sincere when he rebuked Jesus. There was such a reorientation of what this messiahship would mean that was required. See, Jesus isn't about delivering military victory. He's not uh, causing an uprising to be in the wind. He's not going to do the world's thing of using violence to enforce his way. That is the world's way. We use force. I was reflecting on this actually. Uh, I don't know why this came into my head, but even even the kind of the new agey Star Warsy thing. And no offence to anyone like Star Wars. I like Star Wars. But even in that, the kind of the spirit thing there is known as the force. You know, may the force be with you. It's actually very anti-Christ in the sense that Jesus doesn't use force. He beckons you to come. He appeals to your will. He invites you to make a decision to shift your values and to value what's truly valuable and give yourself to it. It's no force except the internal desire of a heart transformed. It's quite remarkable how different it is. The fullness of this reconfiguration is stunning. Jesus comes straight out with it. He talked about these things plainly. He said, the Son of Man must suffer. Well, that was not expected. Son of Man must ride in on a stallion and throw out the Roman overlords. Absolutely on par. 
Son of Man must suffer. Now, interestingly, for a long time, in particularly evangelical circles, people have read this as the notion that God had a plan and in that plan it was imperative that he punish his son for the sins of the world. Now, I'm not going to dismantle all of that, but I do want to suggest a potentially alternate read to that that I find very compelling. Instead of must, meaning the plan of God to do something, I wonder if it might mean a social inevitability. Because what we observe with Jesus is that God doesn't punish Jesus. The people do. Who does the violence to Jesus? The people do the violence to Jesus. The religious leaders and then the civic leaders and then the crowds and the bystanders and then his followers abandon him. It's the people that do the violence. God isn't doing the violence there. He must suffer. I wonder whether rather than divine imprimatur, must might simply mean social inevitability. If you live the way Jesus lives in a world like our world, you must suffer. It's a social inevitability. It's a bit akin to the social inevitability of a politician uh, being scrutinised all the time. If you say something as a, politi- a political leader that you don't want to be heard by everyone, you know that it must be heard. <laughs> There's always a microphone on you or someone reading your lips or whatever. It's a social inevitability. So the Son of Man must suffer. And when it comes to the whole notion of salvation, he highlights losing your life, not saving it. This is so upside down, isn't it? Those who seek to save their life will lose it. Losing life? Hmm. So I want you to consider this for a moment. What if judgment is embedded in the act of sin? What if, think about this, what if the act of violence, of holding reality at bay, enforcing others to conform to our own broken ways of configuring reality, is a kind of judgment in itself. You know how we do that sometimes? We, we believe the world is thus and we need to hold it in that way and we need other people to believe with that with us and there's kind of a force, a violence, in holding all of that matrix together. What if by my own fear and greed and self-protecting decisions I actually shut down my own life by degrees and become increasingly paralysed and unable to enter fully into life? What if the judgement is in the sin? What if really when you do the thing that is unhelpful you experience the unhelpfulness of doing that thing. What if our salvation is found in losing that form of life? 
in letting go of doing life that way. Those who lose their life find it. What if losing that form of life on account of Jesus, as we do that, we discover a renewed freedom to enter into the fullness of every relationship, every circumstance, to be fully present, to give ourselves and offer whatever we can? What if there is the salvation and the life? What if eternal life has just as much to do with entering into the fullness of our life as it does with an unending duration of life? Because as I said before, an ending duration of life is not a good thing unless it's a full life. And what if the invitation is to enter into that full life now? One of the aspects of my involvement with the Synod meetings for a number of years, I used to be the chairperson of Sydney North Presbytery and for my sins I got to go to standing committee at the Synod. And um, they have all sorts of very complex and important and difficult decisions to make. One of the things that I found most difficult in that setting was that institutions are prone to be risk averse. I think they have to be for their survival. So I kind of don't begrudge them that. The problem is following Jesus is not risk averse. And the problem for a church institution is the greatest risk of all is that we stop following Jesus. So basically here we have Peter identifying Jesus as the Christ and then the whole thing comes apart because the Christ he identifies says, you're quite right and the Son of Man must suffer many things and die. And those who seek to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it and the whole thing becomes very confusing for them. When we come looking for our our saviour, how clear are we about what we're looking for? What do we want to be saved from? What do we want to be saved for? And how sure are we that that which we are looking for is that which Jesus is offering? You know, my own experience suggests that we come looking for a whole range of things based on our context. So like the first century disciples, of course they were looking for military solution. That made sense to them. As they journeyed with Jesus, what they were looking for changes. So we can't help looking for what we're looking for. There's no... No shame in that. I came looking for emotional security. And then as we journey along, we find it's in completely other places than what we expected. When it comes down to what you're after and what what you really need, you can be sure every time Jesus will err on the side of what you need. So you might come with an agenda with what you're after 
And Jesus will welcome you. But if you journey with him, he'll take you where you need to go. Maybe you're not where you would choose to go. And it's good. Lord Jesus, you came amongst us. You felt the weight of our expectations. We thank you that you didn't conform to them, but you transformed them. All our hopes and our desires, we can't help but hope from where we are and desire within the context that we're in. And then you transform us and you give us new hopes and new desires. You change our hearts from the very centre of us. This is a mystery too wonderful to understand. But we thank you that that is your messiahship. and We honour you and worship you. In your precious name. Amen.